I think we need conflict in Bitcoin, right? And and one of the things that I think is not said enough to people who are new in Bitcoin is that uh, if you study the timeline of, of Bitcoin, what you will find is that a lot of the biggest ideas about how Bitcoin evolved, they came from people who were very outside the mainstream. That there was sort of a monoculture in Bitcoin at the time, and then someone came from outside of that monoculture with a new idea. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thanks for joining us here again. Today, we spoke to Mr. Pete Rizzo. Pete has been a Bitcoin journalist since 2013. He's one of the longest tenured writers specializing in the field of cryptocurrency. Now editor at Bitcoin Magazine and editor-at-large at at the Kraken Cryptocurrency Exchange. He conducts archival research on Bitcoin's history, working to highlight and identify the people and events that most impacted its development. He is best known as a founding writer and editor for Coindesk, where he served as editor-in-chief from 2014 to 2019. In this discussion, we talk about the origins of Bitcoin, the misconceptions about Satoshi as an omniscient creator, the current bear market, Taro, Lightning, monetary versus network Bitcoin maximalism, the fiat rapture, and St. Hell Finney. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC or send us an email at blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you use. We greatly appreciate it. Blue collar Bitcoin is sponsored by CoinKite, producers of the block clock, the open dime and the cold card. If you need a cold storage solution, look no further. The cold card is a world-class cold storage device that can be used from a humble beginner to a salty old multi-sig pro. This is the best device for keeping your Bitcoin safe that exists in our opinion. Dan and I have been using cold cards for years and have long recommended them to our friends and family. If you're interested in finding that extra special Bitcoin gear, check out the block clock. This is the coolest bit of Bitcoin kit we have found. Display the price of Bitcoin or any other metric you choose. A block clock is a necessary addition to any Bitcoin shrine. If you have thought about gifting Bitcoin to somebody, check out an open dime. This is a small USB device that holds the private keys of the Bitcoin you send it. It's a bearer instrument for Bitcoin, much safer than a paper wallet, the most secure way to give Bitcoin as a gift in person. Also, it's just plain cool. We are also sponsored by Ledin. Ledin is a very unique financial services company with a highly principled Bitcoin forward perspective. They are the first ever digital asset lending platform to undergo a formal proof of reserves attestation, or an independent public accountant regularly attests that the company is properly accounting for client assets. Simply put, this company mirrors and embraces the transparency, accountability, and auditability of the Bitcoin protocol and network itself. If you've listened to this show much at all, you've certainly noticed that we advise our listeners to be careful, manage risk, and not get over leveraged. And that does include ensuring that any borrowing and lending decisions you make, make sound mathematical sense based on your lifestyle and specific situation. Where available in your jurisdiction, Lendon offers a menu of powerful financial services. Keep ownership of your Bitcoin and access dollar loans with Lendon Bitcoin-backed loans. Harness your Bitcoin holdings to buy new property or finance the home you already own with the upcoming Ledin Bitcoin mortgage product. Save Bitcoin and USDC to have access to Ledin dollar loans and their trading service. 
if available. You can also look into Ledin's well-architected menu of services at ledin.io. Visit start.ledin.io slash bluecollarbitcoin and sign up and you will get 10 USDC for creating and funding an account. Please enjoy the show. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Pete Rizzo, thanks for joining us here on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. How are you doing today? Happy to be here and talk about Bitcoin, as always. Pete, uh, fair warning, I've just gotten off of a 48, worked with Dan yesterday. I literally got no sleep for 24 hours, actually for like 36 hours until I was finally, someone had the someone had the humanitarian effort to let me get off the ambulance for a little bit and get some yeah. sleep. So if I'm just dull, uh, uh, that's the fair warning that I'm going to put out there for everyone. If I ask some dumb questions, that is... That's what I'm falling back on is that I got no sleep for two days. Well, we'll try to keep it uh, energetic and, uh, you know, yeah. as shocking, as shocking as it can be. Yeah. Shout out to Perfect. Jim. We we rolled into last night. So Josh and I are on different shifts. He worked the day before on overtime. So don't feel bad for him. He rolls into my shift day with my crew and he was in such disrepair rolling into the evening that I basically had to ask Jim and shout out to Jim. This is made up. I didn't actually ask this, but. I need him off the ambulance tonight because we're talking to Pete Rizzo tomorrow. I need this guy firing on all <laughs> I've never, cylinders. I've never heard that before. Step so. up to the plate, cover this brother on the ambulance. We've got a podcast yeah. to create. And you know what? He stepped up and he did it. So shout out, Jim. Thank you. What a good yeah. guy. G- great guy. Yeah. Huge piece of shit. <laughs> that's that's the kind of his motto at the firehouse. Huh. Pete, Pete uh, what's going on, man? You spent a few days at the beach. Give us just a quick life to up life and mood update here before we get into the meat and potatoes yeah. uh life and mood update uh yeah just uh, got a chance to hit the beach this weekend you know trying to trying to mentally prepare for the uh, coming bear markets that i think everyone has now sort of <laughs> accepted that we are in so as being a someone who is early to accept that change towards towards bearishness sort of at the top of the year uh you know, it's been nice, right? I think bear markets, uh, if you haven't been through them, there's definitely some upside. You know, you get to talk about legitimately interesting things uh, mm. and you get to build, you know, <laughs> you get to, uh, you know, focus on how we're going to take things forward. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's things to like about uh, up markets and there's things to like about down markets, right? Maybe down markets, if it's your first down market, uh, you know, that could be a little bit tough, uh, you know, but there's there's definitely some upside, right? It's a good, it's a good time to kind of focus on the things that matter and, uh you know, get us to the to the next bull market, right? We have to have to pick ourselves up by the old yeah. bootstraps again. It's the old low time preference mode. You got to slip yourself into, you know, mm. tuck yourself in tight for the bear market, and you know, just tell yourself, sweet nothing's about how in two years everything's going to be better. Bear markets are they sift out clowns. We like to call them a clown sift. And my hope also is that today, in this next hour. We can do some potential clown sifting okay. as well. <laughs> clown sifting. <laughs> that's a that's a tough task, but I'll, I'll I'll try to I'll try to do it. But yeah, I think you're I think you're right, right? I think bear markets you see people fade off, tune out. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of comments on Twitter today. Just people. I think there was one tweet that just went out. It was you know, uh, can't wait till Bitcoin hits 40k so I can tell my family who I tried to sell Bitcoin to at 60k. You know, that's, that's definitely the mood right yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. You said you're kind of the resonant. Uh, what did you call yourself? The the Bitcoin Magazine bear right now, or 
Wait, are you well, the bear I, or the bull? Which I mean, farm I animal people, are you? I think maybe people are familiar with my new, uh, you know, kind of Twitter stylings. Of course, you know, I'm a Bitcoin historian on, on Twitter now uh, for whatever that's worth. Uh, you know, maybe don't know about my prior history uh, in Bitcoin, right? So I, I got started as a journalist covering Bitcoin in 2013. And for the first part of my career, uh, and this is sort of where I was editor at Coindesk, ultimately being an editor in chief of sort of the whole global operation there, I was primarily a journalist, right? So, um, Back then, my thought process was really, okay, uh, you know, Bitcoin is cool. It's interesting. I don't really quite get all of it, right? This was 2013. It was a really uh, hot, active market, very frothy, a lot of people yelling, a lot of a lot of interesting things. And, and yes, it was very interesting. Uh, but, you know, I decided that, you know, I really didn't want to go both long Bitcoin and then put my career in it, right? Because as, as someone mm -hmm. who's coming from like a journalism background, you're like, oh, well, Bitcoin goes to zero and I own Bitcoin and I'm the Bitcoin journalist. Well, then both of my bags really go to zero, right? Nobody's going to hire you as as the as the person who kind of took that seriously. So I think, you know, for the early part of my career, like people may remember me as more skeptical, right? You, you might see some people in my mentions kind of calling back to that earlier time, right? So I am someone who was not a Bitcoiner for a long period of time. And really from, I'd say from 2013 to 2017, I would put myself in the class of being someone who was like neutral to very skeptical about Bitcoin for various reasons. And then after 2017, you know, my opinion about Bitcoin really kind of shifted pretty drastically. And I think at that point, uh, you know, and now I would consider myself as being in the Bitcoin, not cryptocurrency camp. Uh, and I think yeah. my initial sort of, you know, reluctance towards Bitcoin was being, you know, was kind of bagged up with all these other crazy ideas and you had all these things you know, sort of coming out at once and all, you know, hundreds of different types of cryptocurrencies. And obviously, you know, Bitcoin is the first and the biggest, but it was, you know, sort of this big explosion that was hard to make sense of. So, you know, all that is to say, uh, you know, I, I think I tend to be more of a pessimist by, by nature, right? Pomp's always tweeting about how, how pessimists don't, <laughs> don't get anything done, uh, which stings a little bit, right? As, as, as a person <laughs> who uh, finds value in pessimism. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's been my approach, right? I think I, I like to say I asked every question I could about Bitcoin, you know, before I really became a Bitcoiner. I actively on a daily basis try to reduce my confidence in Bitcoin. Uh, what I find, though, is that over time, my confidence in Bitcoin only increases. Uh, and I think that actually is, is probably something better to say about Bitcoin, right? Even if you're actively yeah. trying to reduce your confidence in Bitcoin over time, I think I've, I've, I've been unable to decrease my own confidence. So. Uh, you know, that's that's the perspective that I bring. Right. So that's that's not the bullishness of some other of the folks at, at the Bitcoin magazine, uh, many of whom are, you know, very excited about the promise of Bitcoin, as we all are at various points. I was um, combing through some of your catalog on Forbes mm. and the article that you had about why Bitcoin uses energy. You linked to a tweet from uh, January 4th, 2021. And you said, discovered Bitcoin at 50, bought at 20K. Be patient, keep learning. It might take you time. Yeah. And you just went through, I think you basically explained like the backstory of why it is you didn't, you know, it was basically a conflict of interest reporting on this and then having bought it or putting, you know, all your eggs in one basket. But what was it at 20K? What exactly was it that made you buy some at 20K? Well, I think we were talking about this a little bit backstage, right? I think I said long Bitcoin, short Bitcoiners. And I and I do think there's something about sort of the breathless Bitcoin, uh, you know, hi hype machine that can turn people off, right? And I think that was very much my first experience. Um, so, you know, I'd say like what happened at 20K, so this would have been the uh, end of 2017. Uh, really, I think at that point, it was clear if you had been following the space for some period of time that Bitcoin had material was materially different than the other cryptocurrencies and something had happened to Bitcoin 
that was really like difficult to explain, right? So, you know, I would I would actually argue, and I think most of the hardened older Bitcoiners who I used to spar with now sort of accept this argument. And I would say, I don't think we, and I'd say we like being anybody in Bitcoin really understood Bitcoin until the end of 2017. I don't think mm. it's possible uh, because I think that Bitcoin could have made decisions that would have made the software act like a lot of other cryptocurrencies. Uh, and there were like large factions of the community that, that sort of lined up to kind of push in those directions. And it was really sort of only the failure of that and the differentiation of Bitcoin that really came from being like resistant to change and actually like holding up to that, um, where I think a lot of the technical questions we had about Bitcoin were, were sort of answered, right? So I, I view really like the period of Bitcoin from like 09 to 2017 as like really that's when we figured out what Bitcoin was. And if you were really part of that earlier time period, you know, there wasn't much of a difference between all these things, right? So if you're someone who's new to Bitcoin and you're kind of laughing at all these other cryptocurrencies, well, it's like put yourself in 2013, 2014 Bitcoin. It's like Bitcoin had a foundation. There was a lead developer of Bitcoin. <laughs> there was yes. a Bitcoin foundation. And then there was a lead developer of Bitcoin named Gavin Andreessen. And then Bitcoin had a roadmap. Bitcoin had all these kind of companies that were like influencing the roadmap. It had many of the characteristics that you would you now associate with sort of altcoinism or alternative cryptocurrencies. Um, and, it, and it looked and felt like a lot of these projects and that it was like really impossible to differentiate them at any real level, right? And somebody would say that, look, at the end of the day, you could have audited the code and you know, you're only trusting the code. And like, there are a lot of Bitcoiners who I think now uh, are sort of revered for like in hindsight being very you know uh, you know big ideologues of that era. So I, I always throw out like Michael Goldstein or, or Pierre Richard uh, or Jameson Lop or people who are kind of now revered as as Bitcoiners who are OGs. And I would say like you know these are people who are very much like fringe figures in the Bitcoin community like at that time. Like it really Bitcoin wasn't dominated by those things, right? Like in 2013, 2014, like Silicon Valley was very interested in Bitcoin. You sort of had all these big investors coming out. The same kind of people you see interested in Ethereum, like we're interested in Bitcoin, and they were really kind of building, you know, these companies. They were investing in Ripple. They were investing in the, in the Ethereum Foundation, right? So, uh, you know, today I think like if you're coming into Bitcoin, it's sort of easier to delineate, right, what Bitcoin is and what cryptocurrencies are, and, and there's actually like a pretty clear, obvious like separate separate characteristics for them. Uh, whereas back then they were just sort of all jumbled together, right? Like it wasn't really clear. Uh, like what people thought, like the social relationships were like all intermixed. Like there wasn't, you know, the stigma, like there wasn't just like a, even a, I think a, a vague idea that like it was Bitcoin and, and not cryptocurrencies. The other things were sort of, you know, seen as like interesting experiments, but you know, at any rate, like a lot, a lot of stuff kind of happened over time. So I just say, uh, going back to your, I guess, original question about, about the tweet, right. I think it's, it's, you know, it's my reminder to people that it's like it's okay to go through the process of like questioning Bitcoin and have your own road, right? I think one of the things that makes my conviction about Bitcoin stronger and why I push myself to keep presenting it is because I did have such a long path to Bitcoin. And I do think by and large, like intellectual people or people who identify as as like considering themselves smart, like generally have the hardest time with Bitcoin. Because I think, you know, you see mm. a lot of those like tweets about like, you know, the bell curve and you have, yeah. you know, the guys laughing at either end. Um, that is because like the more you kind of dig into like, what are these specific things between Bitcoin and all these other things? Um, you know, it's like I, I just see so many like intellectual people like reject that argument. I was hanging out at the, the Bitcoin conference. I met this one girl. 
Uh, she was the sister of kind of one of the you know big celebrities who was there, and she was you know a Stanford graduate, sort of asking me all these questions about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. You could just see very clearly, like you know, there's so many hurdles for people who like want to ask like material questions about these things. Uh, so I would argue like the adoption for Bitcoin curve, it's like the problem really isn't at either ends of the bell curve, right? The people who like really get it, right? So it's like you have your people who are going to be like Bitcoin, there's only 21 million. I can hold it. Ha ha. Fuck all these other people. <laughs> and there's going to be the people who are like, you know, I'm a fun. This is going to change the world or it's go to zero. Uh, fuck all these other people. It's like really there's this tremendous like gap in the middle of like what I would say, like reasonable people asking reasonable questions. Cause like as a, you know, person who grows up in an education system, like, you know, you're taught to ask like a certain level of questions about things. Right. Uh, and everybody I think considers themselves on some level as being like a smart person, right? Like there's a reason that you guys are not in like MLM schemes or you're not selling like Avon products, like door to door to door. Right. Everybody sort of continues like, like you conceive of yourself as being that kind of person. Right. So at any rate, I think it's like a callback to that story. And I try to be authentic to that story because I think that, um, you know, again, like I wasn't a Bitcoiner initially. I don't think the conditions were there for me to be a Bitcoiner. So I try to work on the problem of like, okay, well, how could I have convinced myself? Like what were the arguments that would have convinced me? So you talked about why Bitcoin uses energy, which I, which I wrote for Forbes. And I think that's a great example. It's you know, people will debate all these things about Bitcoin's energy use, but they won't really ask a basic fundamental question, which is like, why is it the software product protocol needs energy to operate like in, in any way? Right. So, you know, really, that that's an example of an argument where people are like they're arguing about like green energy and like how much energy it uses and like what, you know, whether it's good to use excess cow poop for, for stuff. Right. But they're not just they're not even approaching the question because they don't even really understand how to ask it. Right. I, I think, Pete, I love your work because you are willing to trod into the complexity. Like, so there's two articles that really stand out to me recently. Mm. First one that I, I read, I don't know how long ago you released it, but we released it right after it came out, The Last Days of Satoshi. Yeah. And then mm. the other one, the more recent one, Bitcoin after 2140, differing mm. views on the future of the future of money. Yeah. I think you sort of dispel two misnomers that you've, you've hit on here. Number one, and I think this is profound, especially for uh, newer Bitcoiners or, or OGs that tend to be more binary in their thinking and totally assuming that this thing is some perfect mythical, mm. religious, otherworldly invention, is that the, the, the origins of this are, are messy. Like the mm. last days of Satoshi, Josh and I, the first thing that we said to each other was, wow, the, 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 what you unpacked. The origin story of this thing is far from perfect. It's far from immaculate. Satoshi had what could be labeled as a lot of issues. What we currently define as, de as robustly decentralized in many ways right. looked very different than that in the beginning. So misnomer number one is this perfect origin story. Mm, I think misnomer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the second misnomer that you dispel is this notion that Bitcoin is totally stagnant. And I don't want people to freak out and say, I'm saying we should go after consensus rules. But this protocol has changed tremendously if you go year over year over the last 13 years. And I'm here to tell you, folks, it's going to need to change again. If you had left TCPIP alone in 1985, we wouldn't be streaming video the way we are today. If you leave Bitcoin completely alone, you don't develop on it. You don't think outside the box. You don't improve privacy or fungibility or whatever that's going to need to be from a development standpoint. 
this project is not going to work. It's not something you can completely leave alone. Mm, and right. you are definitely you are definitely pushing buttons and poking uh, dichotomous thinkers and people that are taking shortcuts in this space through well, your I think work. You hit the nail on the head, right? It's like Bitcoin requires an active management and governance, right? Uh, but you know, in many ways, we we don't really provide good tools for people who actually want to participate in that process in good faith. And again, I go back to my own journey of like, you know, I've spent you know the better part of eight years trying to figure out how it is the Bitcoin makes changes or or how that process works any other way, and it's like. I still am learning about that process like in a way. And, and so then you think about that, okay, well, how does the entirety of the community manage manage that? You know, I've, I've settled on thinking, I don't think there was ever going to be a great answer there, right? I think mm. there's a certain amount of obfuscation around around the Bitcoin development process that that's going to continue to be there to, I think, kind of as almost as a defense message mechanism, right? To kind of keep some shell around it. I mean, that said, like there is a really you know, elaborate and sort of justifiable like reasons that we have, you know, Bitcoin governance, which I think was you, you hinted at. And in both those articles, really, they speak to that. Right. So I think with last days of Satoshi, it was really like, you know, OK, uh, we don't know who Satoshi is, mm -hmm. uh, but what do we know about him? Right. Like what, you know, do we know anything? And I think really that that article tried to go back and say, OK, like what is the Internet footprint of like what he did? And then you know, how does what he did hold up to sort of our view of how the network should operate? And I think you just kind of hit on the nail on the head is that that's a pretty messy picture. And then when you start kind of comparing the two, you can ask more interesting questions, which is sort of like, okay, well, if Satoshi doesn't meet sort of our ideal standard of, of how, you know, someone should maintain Bitcoin or how a community should maintain Bitcoin, and I, I would argue in some ways that he doesn't, uh, well, then what was it that he didn't get? And like, why mm. didn't he get that? Uh, I think my argument has sort of become is I, I don't think Satoshi really could have ever envisioned a, a network without him because he was sort of the principal inventor of it and he never really had to force the problem, right? So when you invent something and you're sort of the arbiter or caretaker of it, uh, I, I, you know, again, I just I don't think he had that conception of like, okay, well, what I could be the problem or a single point of failure is yeah. here. The way that we obviously think that that's a problem now, <laughs> right? And would never have a system where you know, he would just unilaterally enact changes like without really consulting anyone. Well, it's interesting. I mean, when you read this piece and this is highly recommended reading for anyone inter interested in it because it's really good. You see all, you know, the humanity that he had, like maybe uh -huh. he didn't see his blind spots. People actually considered forking Bitcoin away from him if he did certain things and they weren't unhappy and they were unhappy with it. Uh -huh. And um, he did, though. I, I mean, to give him credit, obviously, he was a human. He had flaws. He walked away from a project. Yeah, he walked away from it. I mean, and that really is like, I'm going to blow this up again, but like a George Washington type thing to do. Like yeah. you could have been yeah. the king of Bitcoin, but you walked away. It's interesting yeah. too, Josh and, and Pete, in the sense that like the reasons he walked away, I think are a lot different than a lot presume. And this is, you know, not from doing the, the level of research you've done. And it, it's almost like it took Satoshi and the users of Bitcoin time to realize that the users were actually in control like and yeah. and the, and both parties had to kind of come to this recognition now here's where this the nuance enters is and maybe this is a question for you like could it have survived in the beginning without satoshi's sort of unilateral control of upgrades and patches and whatnot like did we need this moment did we need these you know months of a benevolent dictator to graduate towards the decentralized kraken mm. that we have today 
What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question, right? I think the the hallmark of a great question though is that you can keep asking it and like you can feel differently about it, right? And I think this is one of the things where, where Bitcoiners are sort of bad. They, you know, we really oftentimes try to force us into these binary things, right? It's either like, oh, immaculate conception, Satoshi good, and everything Satoshi did was therefore good. Uh, we almost don't look at it like that. It's like the, to me, the question is the thing that's valuable, right? So. Um, you know, your you, your question really is, you know, so you know, was Satoshi important to this early process, uh, or where did he fall short? And I think it's like, as if we can ask that question, that's really why I wrote the piece that way, right? It's like I didn't want, because uh, this is a, this is a hallmark of a lot of other Bitcoin writing as well. Is like a lot of Bitcoin writing is designed to sort of like give you some point and then just have you understand the point, like you know, where it's like. Oh, Bitcoin is not democratic or Bitcoin is the best money ever. It's like, you know, a lot of times we try to kind of force points on people. But, uh, you know, to your question, it's like, I don't know the answer to that any more than, than you do. Right. I don't I think that, yeah. um, you know, obviously there were points in the network where uh, it was basically like no one was using it. Right. And I think like I, I guess from writing that whole article, really, I think the thing that kind of stuck with me the most that I wasn't able to write in there is just like, how much like intellectual fortitude you would have had to have to be Satoshi because you would have had to gone through this, like this whole period where like, you know, I, there's no possible way you could have <laughs> considered the project a success. Like no, no one was using it. Like barely anyone was talking about it. And, you know, but he, he persevered and he, he also did it in such a way um, where, you know, Bitcoin monetized on its own, right? Like he never valued yeah. Bitcoin. He never sold Bitcoin. He never exchanged Bitcoin. You know, we know that he sent transactions to people, uh, but in a lot of respects, you know, Satoshi let the users really, you know, come together and actually make Bitcoin money. So another of the questions that I think that piece raises is really interesting is like, when was Bitcoin money? Like, when did it become money? Uh, and then when did it become decentralized? Right. And does that actually even happen at the point that Satoshi launches it? And I would argue that the answer to that is no. Yeah, because uh, mm -hmm. it didn't have any value. So it wasn't money when he made it. Um, I would argue that it's probably money at the point that uh, there's this user named New Liberty Standard and he, he prices Bitcoin. And I would actually argue that, that the point that he was willing to accept money for Bitcoin, like Bitcoin became money. That was that's probably like the spontaneous monetization moment where you know, at the point that some human being was willing to exchange value for it, it probably became money. And then it's like, well, when did it become decentralized? And I think that's sort of what gets you to like the 2017 era where it's 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 really only once you peel back like all the onions of that whole, uh, you know, cascade. And like, you know, I'm sure people have kind of delved into that messy history where it's like, when did Bitcoin become decentralized? Like much later. Uh, yeah, you know, would be my would be my answer to that. I think I'm quoting you here. But if I'm quoting somebody else, I apologize, whoever you are. I think it's you that said, you know, Bitcoin is a is a process of or a decentralization is a process of maturation. Hmm. Maybe it was Guy Swan. I don't know I who don't know. it was. That but somebody, smart for me. <laughs> so that is so true though. This doesn't happen overnight. And that can rub some especially for people that want to think, right, that this immaculate conception transpired and this thing was immediately robustly decentralized. That just that's just the studying the history indicates that that's not how this yeah, played out. I, I would just point out it's like it's okay for that to be true and for the answer today to be different. Like I just exactly. think that that's a bad. Like, you know, a lot of the Bitcoin conversation really 
it's like we kind of fall into the same you know we like to criticize the fiat system for you know the way that does it but we fall in the same trap of like oh if it's true today it had to have always been true yes (laughs) so i'm gonna pull on this thread for a second because this could trigger some people like let's look at let's think about altcoin land right now Mm. there are people in altcoin land making what could be categorized as a fair argument when you go back in Bitcoin history and saying this isn't decentralized right now, but trust me, one day it will be. Well, that's kind of the path Bitcoin followed, right? Mm. But to flip to flip back to the other way, this is why Bitcoin is so unreplicable because it has gone through this process of maturation. It has arrived through a variety of different incentives and players in the system. It has arrived at a destination it's not a destination, but for lack of a better phrase, a destination of decentralization that is extremely challenging to replicate because it's gone through this process of maturation. Mm. Yeah. And I would say um, when to your point about, you know, people, we need to get involved in Bitcoin governance. And, you know, we actually do have, uh, you know, meaningful say in how, uh, you know, whether Bitcoin succeeds or fails or to the extent that it does. Right. Like, I think that's unarguable. Um, I would really point to, I I think you're correct about that because, you know, to the extent that these other, you know, cryptocurrencies exist and to the extent that they're arguably, you know, again, you can make the argument that they're providing some feature that Bitcoin, you know, doesn't have. And I think this was a, you know, Udi Werthermeyer who's, who's drawn a lot of criticism lately, but I think this was a kind of a core, you know, point of his very messy, imperfect argument on Twitter, which is essentially like, you know, if you're unwilling to provide something through Bitcoin and then people make it somewhere else, you know, mm. who are you to tell them sort of not to use that? Right. And so I, I think there's a couple valuable pieces of information on that. And so I'll just break them down, which is one, like, I do think it is on us to continue extending and improving the Bitcoin system. Right. And if we see something elsewhere that exists that we find value in and don't incorporate that, like, and again, this is there's there's tons of caveats with this this questioning that I'm dropping right now. But again, it's like a good question to ask. And it was something that I was doing a lot at the end of the last year where it's like, well, what is the point that this gets to? Right. And I think something interesting that you guys might have caught is there was um Lightning Labs kind of came out with their uh, stable coins on on Lightning initiative, right? So they've put forth Taro, which is a proposal to put stable coins on Lightning. And this was something that I sort of kept asking towards the end of last year, because it's sort of, you know, okay, well, we're, we as Bitcoiners, we accept that Bitcoin is the best form of money. Uh, but now we're also sort of saying that we support stable coins because, you know, it's very obvious in these emerging markets, people are using stable coins. They want yeah. something, yeah. they want the US dollar brand, they want, they, they want to be free from the volatility. Uh, John Carvalho is somebody I respect a lot who's like started working on this problem. And then shortly after that, we saw Lightning Labs kind of do the same thing. And this was, you know, a pretty big break from what the kind of Twitterati was saying, which is like, you know, okay, well, you know, there's no way you will never do stable coins on Lightning or whatever. And then you saw the developers kind of come out and say, okay, like, yeah, we can do this. This is how we do this. Um, but obviously that's like something we would have to work to and we would actually have to, to realize that vision. Right. So anyway, like these things are kind of complicated, right. And they're not, they're not black or white, but you could that's a good example of something where, you know, there is this sort of understanding that the Bitcoin exists and it has this this value as, as the best form of money ever created. Uh, that said, there is this, you know, tool that's currently available, which, again, is, you know, you can go to these places. I was in Lebanon at the end of last year. Those people are using stable coins. Even the Bitcoiners are using stable coins. They're, they're, they're buying Bitcoin with stable coins. They're buying stable coins and they're buying Bitcoin. That is that is what is happening. They are using uh, Binance, and they're using Tron. They're using they're using all these tools because they're they're trying to solve a problem, uh, right. and so that is happening. Uh, and then now Bitcoiners are sort of making a proposal, but then the community has to follow through on that, right? So and and the community following through on that 
could actually include us making changes to us to the software, right? We 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 hope that we don't, right? We want Bitcoin to exist and have minimal changes, uh, but we might, right? That might be have a conversation that we we need to have, right? So I think um, you know all these things are delicate, and I think um, you know really it's just like you, the best thing we can do is give people the tools to like approach these conversations, right? right. Um, and I just like the example of the developers because I think you know at the end of last year I would ask people about oh like well what do you think about the stablecoin thing because that's obviously seems like this is a mature, you know, they've been around for like four or five years. They're like moving all this, this money. Like this, this seems like it's definitely a thing. And, you know, from Bitcoin Tina and American HODL and some of those guys, it was like, oh, never, you know, you'll never see this. And then Lightning Labs kind of comes out like two months later and they're like, here's how we can do this. <laughs> right. So like the connect even between like communities within Bitcoin, because uh, Bitcoin has very meaningful subcultures. Right. Um, and, and again, it's just an, it's an, interesting point because there are flashpoints right they're like not every i would say like not everybody understands bitcoin but even within bitcoin people understand bitcoin differently like depending on which group you fall in right so there's different perceptions of bitcoin even within bitcoin following this from our perspective and i think dan would agree on this like taro has been an interesting a really interesting project that i've been keeping an eye on and they're not they're not changing anything in the underlying protocol this is on lightning this has already been enabled you know, seg segregated witness enabled them to do lightning in 2017. And now we've got lightning and they're building Taro on top of that. So it doesn't actually have any, it doesn't change anything on the underlying they, well, protocol. The, the caveat is that they, that's what they, that they don't think that it does. <laughs> right. And so the thing with any proposals is, and so I'm really interested with Taro because there's a historical analog here that I think a lot of people are missing. And is, is I think that Taro is the biggest proposal for Bitcoin since sidechains. And I think uh, one mm. of the interesting things to think about with sidechains is people don't know this was in like a 2014 era proposal where Blockstream kind of came out. There were this company founded by Adam Back and it was sort of all the Bitcoin developers. And they really put forward this idea that you were going to build many blockchains on top of Bitcoin that potentially had had different assets. Right. And and this became something where like, you know, this was part of the piece that I wrote for Forbes that you were mentioning, uh, you know, talking about the different groups within Bitcoin. Uh, you know, very quickly, like the definition of Bitcoin maximalism sort of became or, like forged around that view. It was saying, hey, we, we can actually recreate all these other types of systems on Bitcoin. Uh, obviously, flash forward today, and there's been minimal progress towards that. So am I mistaken then? Is there does there need to be an underlying change in Bitcoin's underlying protocol for Taro well, again, to like exist? just because we just because we don't think it does now doesn't mean we won't end up. So again, I'm not you could be right. They could be right. They could be wrong. I don't know, right? Like I don't think we know, right? So they they have a proposal. Uh, I'm just saying with pro so you have to be careful, and I think this is where the marketing. Why I also bring up sidechains within the context of tarot is because in both cases there was like a commercial entity that came out and made this announcement. And this announcement was sort of made around some sort of funding round, right? So Lightning Labs raised seven right. million dollars. Sidechains uh, and Blockstream had raised twenty one million back in the day, right? So it, you know we've seen this history in Bitcoin of you know, companies that are sort of built around developments, they'll kind of paint this big vision and say, okay, here's where Bitcoin is going, you know, mm. here, close our funding round. Uh, and then, you know, they'll find that just the technical proposals of it just don't pan out. So if you actually study and kind of look and research at, at you know, the evolution of Bitcoin proposals, there's just whole swaths of the Bitcoin network that, you know, just they, they didn't work. Like the classic example is, you know, there's a whole section of the Bitcoin white paper about uh, SPV wallets, which is this idea that, you know, you would have, you would essentially have a wallet that doesn't run the full blockchain. These just don't exist. They never, they were impossible. Uh, but Satoshi thought they were possible. <laughs> and so for like four or five years, uh, a large number of Bitcoin developers worked on this 
set of ideas that were just impossible. Like, right. They just, it didn't happen. And in the end, uh, you know, we decided not to do that. So the thing is that you have to remember with tarot is it's like tarot is still a, a technical proposal. And at the end of the day with a technical proposal, uh, it could be right. Like in the case of, you know, where your example was lightning, right. The, that network, uh, has, has blossomed and now is, is, is sort of a, a platform for, for many, many, many businesses. Uh, but there are also other proposals, you know, that took four or five years and were like complete dead ends and just, you just never went anywhere for a variety of reasons. So, uh, we just don't know which one tarot is at this point. I think everybody would hope, you know, that it falls into the, to the lightning, uh, you know, example of, okay, well, this is a big, bold new vision and it pans out and here's all the benefits we get. Uh, but you know, we want to make a caveat there is like the asterisk. It's like, these are technical proposals. And at the end of the day, they could fail for any uh, variety of reasons. Like, so one of the interesting things about side chains is like the more I dig into that, it seems like they realized pretty quickly after like releasing that white paper, like within a couple months that it just wasn't feasible. Right. That like they thought it was a great idea and then it passed all this initial review. And then just like, you know, it was Peter Todd who like came out and was just like, no, this isn't, this isn't going to work here. Are all the problems with it. And then, you know, they tried for then a period of years to kind of find some way around that. And then eventually, you know, we live in a world now where there's no, you know, there's liquid, which is a, a Bitcoin sidechain. But, um, you know, people would argue wasn't again, this is a little weedsy, but I think I'm point is no, I think I think you're hitting on a, a, an interesting idea, which is that this is one of the beauties and the perils of developing on an open source project like you can get you, you can fail technically or you can fail economically. Right. Mm. But you're a barnacle on the whole of the Bitcoin ship and you're not going to change the direction of the rudder necessarily. Maybe you can impact it. Maybe you can your draft or whatever can impact the direction of the ship. But even lightning, let's say lightning mm. isn't necessarily an inevitability like it. Someone could develop something else as a second layer that theoretically in 60 would, years might be argue the, that lightning seems pretty good. Like I would, I would argue if, if, there, if there's any future where we're building large, uh, new types of systems on top of Bitcoin, you would want lightning to hold up because it's sure. really yeah. the only thing where if you look at all the other proposals, right. And I think side chains like, and now modern views towards liquid and like stacks and sort of all these other things, like lightning is the only one where at the end of the day, it's like lightning is Bitcoin. Mm. You're just locking Bitcoin yeah. and you're creating a different set of conditions for which that Bitcoin operates and you're creating a network that like recognizes those conditions. Right. So like I think the thing that that lightning really did. And if you look at the, the history of Bitcoin technical development, um, you know, there was always some layer of abstraction like with liquid. It's like, you know, OK, it's this other blockchain, but then these yeah. three, two guys kind of run it. And there's a Omni, there's a federated group of people that can control it, which is a right, very yeah. important point. Right, exactly. And then, um, you know, with uh, Omni, it was just like, oh, there's a second layer on, on Bitcoin and we like burned a bunch of Bitcoin to like make it valuable. You know, there's all sorts of like weird hand wavy stuff going on there. Uh, and, you know, Lightning, is, again, it's like Lightning is sort of called this a layer two uh, on top of Bitcoin. But at the end of the day, Lightning is Bitcoin, right? It is you are actually yeah. moving real units of Bitcoin. Um, and I think this is what the altcoiners like sort of or the cryptocurrency people in general, like really get wrong about Lightning is that you know, at the end of the day, lightning is like you're moving Bitcoin to a new consensus system like within Bitcoin. Like the, the the fact that most more VCs like haven't woke up to the idea that lightning just the idea that you can do lightning like totally obliviates the crypto asset thesis. Right. Because the crypto asset thesis like sort of suggested that like cryptocurrencies uh, would be valued by their communities and then the data would have certain characteristics. But now within Bitcoin, you can actually take the same 
string of data of Bitcoin and it can behave radically differently in two networks that are actually still in Bitcoin. Right. Uh, so that should be something that is viewed as uh, as undermining the previous the previous proposal, right? So again, like this is where like you know the whole cryptocurrency system is itself like a, a series of these sort of like you know technical proposals that are then sort of built up on each other. Uh, and then we extrapolate, extrapolate like our own realities, like on top of these things. Um, but yeah, the lightning one, I think, you know, we should, we should want like lightning to work because in a, in a world where lightning provides a lot of value to Bitcoin, I think it's easier to foresee a future in which other things are possible in that same way. Cause you, you at least have one thing that works and you, yeah. you can go around and you can say, okay, <laughs> why did, why did we all agree that this thing worked? Uh, and you can build off that. And if we lose that with lightning, I think that'd be very bad. I agree. I think the point I'm getting at is that that's not an inevitability. Like if you have a if you own a company or launch a token that's proprietary and under your control, even if the whole project goes to shit, you can say this is the direction that technology's going. When you're dealing with an open source decentralized project, is it incredibly likely that Lightning's here to stay? Oh fuck yeah, and we're huge fan. But th- there there's you are sort of inexorably linked to something bigger than yourself when you're developing on yeah, something yeah, yeah. like Bitcoin. Yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Shinobi has been really good at like talking about, I don't know if you guys follow Shinobi, but he's a really great uh, voice in the Bitcoin developer community, but he's been really active lately sort of talking about, he had a really great tweet that it was like, um, you know, in the uh, 2014, 2017 era, the four core era, uh, you know, the big issue was that, uh, you know, Bitcoin businesses, uh, uh, you know, they wanted to change how Bitcoin worked in order to support their business models. And he said, now the change that he's seeing is sort of, you know, with Lightning and how it's evolving is the businesses are sort of saying, you know, well, we don't want this to change. Now we're going to stop this from changing in order to support our business. Oh, in- yeah. Interesting. Um, so anyway, it was so an it's interesting, kind of flipped. Yeah. Yeah. It was an interesting thing, which is like, I, again, I can't say if that's accurate. I actually don't follow the Lightning stuff as closely. It's just, you know, kind of its own thing that I, I don't pay too much attention to. But um yeah, essentially what he's saying, and I think the accurate piece of, of data there is that, uh, you know, you, you really have to be careful about how we're building companies on top of Bitcoin. because There have been very few companies that I would say that are actually like very well aligned with Bitcoin's incentive model. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, you can get situations, and this was definitely true of sort of the four core era where, you know, the people who are in charge of these companies, they have different, their incentives get misaligned. Right. And then all of a sudden the company is somewhat hostile uh, to a Bitcoin that really benefits all of the users. Right. And I think, um, gosh, in the cryptocurrency space, there's like countless examples of that. Right. And then you can kind of evaluate all, all of them. But in Bitcoin, it's it's a still a consistent and persistent thread. Right. I think, um, you know, you look at uh, all the companies that are, you know, their business models are sort of based around long term storage. And then you look at something like Opsi TV you know, which, uh, you know, was a proposal put forward by a developer named Jeremy Rubin. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that. But again, at its core was, you know, was trying to enable advanced forms of custody. Uh, so, you know, are people, you sort of have to ask at the end of the day, right, is like, what are the motivations of the people and are they aligned with Bitcoin? Uh, and the most you can really do is try to align yourself with Bitcoin. Uh, and that's, very, in my experience, like been very hard for a lot of people. <laughs> Hmm. To go back to that Shinobi comment, because that's there's some depth there, and I think it hmm. parlays into this technologist dev community versus this economic perspective. So basically, it, tell me if you would agree with this theme. So, and I haven't interacted with this idea from Shinobi, but originally it was Bitcoin needs to become X or Y. Now it's Bitcoin needs to stay X, let's say. And some of that's because since t- 2017, to just pick a date. 
we've had this massive influx of sort of Austrian-minded, economically motivated, hard money individuals that view Bitcoin the asset with some disregard, and I'm just regurgitating you here, with yeah. some disregard <laughs> of Bitcoin the network, right? Mm. So th- I think maybe what Shinobi's identifying, that flip in the narrative or the priority in Bitcoin could be because we have this new economic asset framework. Here's my question. In what ways do you see a difference in vision or perspective between, say, the technologists and the devs and the more economically asset-minded mm. individuals. Can we explore that theme a little bit? Yeah, sure, happy to. Um, yeah, I would say the developers are definitely more activists, right? If you look around about the major kind of groups that originally came uh, to Bitcoin, you know, the Austrians, I think, you know, to the extent that they were represented kind of in the initial wave of like 2011 sort of Ron Paul types, you know, came to Bitcoin. Um, I think what's interesting about the Austrians is that that in Bitcoin, they found something that embodied what they already wanted. And that gives them like a little bit of a leverage amongst the Bitcoin cultural groups, because, you know, in their view, Bitcoin as it operates already is the thing that they've been looking for for like hundreds of years. Right. So they're kind of a funny group where like, you know, they're almost like this. Uh, you know, prior religion that like, you know, all of a sudden hmm. found this new I would God, argue that know? these are the people that had the gold standard, like the libertarian, right, Austrian, yeah, vented uh, people. Yeah. They, I would include myself in that group. Like that was obvious. That was me back in 2010 and 11. And when I understood hmm. Bitcoin with having understood the gold standard and all those things, this made total sense to me very quickly. Yeah. And then you have the, I would say you have like the digital cash group, right? Like, and that's the, what's interesting is I think that's, that's the cultural group that Satoshi actually originates from, from what we can tell, right? Cause he was on the mailing list with all these people and he was, you know, discussing some of the same ideas, right? So the digital cash people always wanted cash to be anonymous, right? And they were thinking about anonymous transactions, like right, your rights within the network, like within, within the internet, uh, so maybe to pull apart your question a little bit, right? It's like that group has always sort of required Bitcoin to change in some way or has wanted to improve Bitcoin. And I would I think that what's really interesting is that the early developers were by and large that set, right? So if you look at most of the like where has most of the historical development work happened around Bitcoin, it's actually happened in like privacy, like which is something right. that Bitcoin is actually pretty weak on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's happened there because that's the culture. That's what, you know, the developers have always seen like themselves as trying to unlock that potential. And, I, and if you read Satoshi's original writing, you know, again, and this kind of gets a little bit dicey, but I, I think that he perceived Bitcoin as an anonymous payment network. And he thought that that is what he made. And I don't think that I think it's it's clear that at some point during his management, he figures out that that's, that's not accurate. Uh, so they mod- modify the language a little bit. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting, right? Because like one of those groups requires Bitcoin to continue to improve and change and the other group doesn't, right? So the Austrians just sort of say like, okay, this is great. Like we already wanted like a, a digital alternative to gold. Uh, so so awesome. Like, you know, fuck all the rest of the stuff that we don't want to deal with. Um, so then that sort of puts the onus on the developers to kind of, you know, make their case and then sort of make some change uh, with the caveat of like, if they do anything the users don't want, uh, there's another network, right? They have to split off and kind of do their own thing. And I, th- I think that's where a lot of the cryptocurrencies kind of originate from is that schism, um, you know, but ultimately the unity of the Bitcoin network is it's, you know, it's strongest with both of those camps. Um, but yeah, I think this will be a drama that just continues to play out. And I think you're already seeing it with, we mentioned Tarot, right? So like the developers are by and large, very favorable to, to Tarot. If you're someone from the Austrian camp, like, like yourself, uh, it, it's, I would say, uh, 
you know, the question that I would ask, and nobody has answered for me regarding Intero is like, how does Lightning supporting stable coins benefit me as someone who owns Bitcoin? And if there's no answer to that, oh, sorry. You can no, go. I was just going to say, I think a lot of people would view that as like taking market share away from uh, right. Tron or taking it away from Ethereum or whatever other network they're using in replacement of Bitcoin. And mostly that's been because it was more convenient or cheaper or, you know, what are what other excuse they might have for using one of these other faster, less centralized or more centralized networks uh, versus Bitcoin. Yeah, but sort of the question is like, how does it actually add value to you as a Bitcoin user, right? I think that like, does it make your Bitcoin more valuable? It might make Bitcoin the network more valuable. Right. So I would agree with that argument. Um, and I think that's where Tarot is likely to find an, an argument. But if you extend it to like, okay, well, how does Tarot make my Bitcoin more valuable? Well, I'm, here's a, uh, here's maybe a, Here's an uneducated argument for that, because I I don't know much about how Terra works exactly. But let's say in order to use Lightning, you have to use actual moving actual Bitcoin around. So I'm assuming with Terra, you'd have to be moving actual Bitcoin around. So assuming then you're going to put demand on the asset of Bitcoin by having to lock up and move around more Bitcoin for that network to operate on top of it. So it would add it should theoretically add value to Bitcoin's underlying asset by just creating more demand for it. Mm. Here's another way to think about this too, is maybe these stablecoin solutions built on a Bitcoin second layer, just scaffolding we need to get the main structure up. Like that's kind of how I view stablecoins. Like in in a Bitcoinized future, in in the bullish scenario, this thing becomes unit of account. It's medium of exchange, right? But we are not there yet. And folks, we are a long way from that. Like, I think a lot of people underestimate. In my humble opinion, we're a long way from that. Mm. Um, what's going to happen to fiat? I don't know. But like back to the humanitarian utility, like thinking of Gladstein and your comments about being in Lebanon and whatnot. People mm. need stable coins, right? They can't go all in Bitcoin. So maybe it's just this hybrid scenario where it, it is... What, it's it's a mechanism we need until we yeah. get to the final destination. I, I I don't disagree with you at all. And I don't think any network activity is bad generally. And I agree that stable coins have a place and a time, at least for the foreseeable future. People are going to want something that is not as volatile as Bitcoin. And I am curious, Pete, what your thoughts are on just that thesis that I presented there. Do you think that makes sense? That increasing uh, network demand should eventually increase asset demand in some level? Yeah, I think at the highest level, that's probably true. I think whether, you know, you, then you sort of run down sort of the questions, derivative questions from there. And, you know, we're probably in areas where neither of us really have the expertise. But I would say, uh, you know, to your question, Josh, essentially, uh, you know, uh, if it is true that you need to make a Bitcoin transaction to then sort of make some amount of the new, this new stable coin, well, then is it sort of like one to one or like what's the relationship? Or can you just open up one transaction and create a billion? dollars mm. in the stable coin. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then that just yeah. trades in there. Uh, so in the case that might be very minimal. Uh, and then, you know, if, if it does trade like sort of, you know, in a one-to-one fashion, it is very valuable. Well, so you as a lightning router, like, does it make sense? Like who's storing all this data for this, you know, cause assuming there's some state of that network, right. There's something that if it, if it isn't a blockchain, there's some record of like right. who owns what going between from some node to some other node. Uh, so like who owns that and like what stress does that does is that person incentivized? So again, they're like because Bitcoin's a network and because it is decentralized, you, you have to look at the relationships between all those stakeholders. I, I mean, again, I think I'm excited for the conversation for Tarot to unfold. I just think that, you know, as we've seen with Lightning, when you have one of these proposals, 
you know, it'll proceed as such. There'll be a lot of excitement. There'll just be a dip in enthusiasm when, you know, that things get hard. Then all of a sudden, you know, there'll be some culture that pushes it forward. Um, you know, now we're trying to get people to add liquidity to the Lightning Network because now it works, but it needs liquidity, right? So you're, you're always going to hit incremental uh, challenges, right? So I think, um, you know, tarot is a potential, you know, avenue in that direction. It'll be interesting to see people go down that path, right? And and there's, you know, it's hard to tell, like, you know, when you're going to get to the end of any of these things, if ever, right? And sometimes nobody tells you that something's over, right? And our, our opinion about Bitcoin has already changed, or maybe we've already learned what we need to learn from that experiment. I mean, I think you guys are right, right? I don't think that there's a scenario where stable coins don't exist in the short term. And that short term being probably hundreds of years, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the gap for the average person to get into Bitcoin is still too large. And then, you know, the fact of with, you know, if you do have a large scale failure of, of the fiat system, well, you effectively have a ton of people who are unbanked, right? Um, and, and at the end of the day, as someone who's unbanked, you really can't become a Bitcoin user very easily, right? You, you could say that, oh, okay, well, maybe you can become a miner and then you can mine your mm. Bitcoin, but like- Yeah, this is a good point. You know, uh, at the end of the day, if you don't have a bank account, <laughs> like yeah. it, it's just, you know, how you can't stack sats in that environment, right? Uh, very easily. So uh, there is a relationship there. It'll be interesting to see how the Bitcoin groups, like various Bitcoin groups sort of litigate that and what, uh, you know, they see. And I think, you know, Tarot at least opens a conversation, right? Uh, but, you know, it has died out a little bit since it- yeah. came out so we'll see how it moves forward it's definitely an interesting uh thing to keep an eye on and it, it could potentially have consequences that we can't even think of at this point you know it's like jeff bezos and amazon in 1999 where he was positioning himself for a future that almost nobody understood or had a grasp on hmm. and he crushed it obviously when you were on with mccormick yeah. you made some comments about asking questions or asking the question of why you know hmm. um basically drilling down to the substrate of whatever it is you're uh you're focused on and <clears throat> i think that maybe this is and correct me if i'm wrong but maybe some of your contention with some bitcoin plebes that will just take whatever they're told at face value believe it and run with it i think it's compelling and it's something that people should definitely try to do for themselves like ask the question why until you don't know why and then do some mm -hmm. research on that or from the other uh, i like what elon musk has to say about reasoning from first principles which is the other direction like First, build yourself a solid foundation to understand understand things from first principles up. Do you have any advice for people on how to best reason from first principles and for this kind of stuff, or where where's the best place to really drill down, either to build yourself a good base, just good resources right. for people, or in the other direction, like how to build that characteristic in yourself to ask why, and right. actually find yourself some answers without just leaning on other people to tell you how everything is. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, obviously, it's taken me years, and I don't know if I've gotten anywhere. But, but uh, you know, I, I think I've I don't know if I have either some ideas. I mean, I think one of the things that I like to do immediately is if somebody gives you a statement, uh, you just you know assume just rephrase the sentence as being as the opposite of that, and then you, that. you know is, is that just as unlikely or is it is that just as ridiculous, right? So uh, I don't know. You could give me a statement like say, uh, well, if El Salvador doesn't, uh, you know, if El Salvador Bitcoin adoption doesn't work, Bitcoin fails. Well, you know, you know, you ask the opposite of that question. Well, it's like, okay, well, you know, uh, you know, if, if El Salvador succeeds, like, you know, whatever, you, you can examine questions in different ways, right? So like, uh, oftentimes, I think there's like sitting with a question for a long enough time uh, can help you uh, get some things out of it. So I always like to do that. I I'd oftentimes just say, like, reject the initial, like, 
thing that you're being given and then uh, ask some equal opposite question and then and then try to go from there. Uh, but ultimately, I think, um, you know, it's hard to build conviction in Bitcoin uh, and it's hard to know where to start. Right. I accept that. And I think that while we've definitely improved Bitcoin education a bunch, you know, you're still kind of on your own to a large degree. Right. You know, and even myself, like, um, you know, I think that you know, if I look back at my time as a journalist, like I'm not sure how educated I was on, on Bitcoin, like at that time. Right. I'm not so sure. Hmm. Like I had an advantage because I knew where to start in some areas. Right. Yeah. But even it still took me a long time. Right. So I, I think you just have to get engaged in the discussion, like read, yeah. consume yeah. stuff, like read what other people are recommending, find what interests you in Bitcoin. I, I think we're probably at a stage in Bitcoin where it's just too large for you to be an expert. Also, for in, sure in it everything is. About Bitcoin, and I think right? everybody um, who enters brings their own lens, you know, like. For me, it was like an Austrian gold bug kind of lens. For Dan, it might have been a network lens or a more, you know, Silicon Valley-esque look at it. Everyone's entering mm. this with a presupposition of what it is, and then they build on that base in order to get where they their final understanding or like their current understanding of it. And I think that's also apropos. And then there's yeah, just the people who just me, I think the big thing was listen just to everyone that- on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that we're we as participants in the system are economically benefiting from Bitcoin at a rate that people who are in the traditional economy aren't. Right. That's a great point. No, I want to, just wanted to say Eric mm-hmm. Weinstein likes to make that point or has made it in the past that we're basically selling our book. And yeah, yeah oh, 100%. we are. I mean, we all benefit yeah. when the price of Bitcoin goes up, assuming you own some. So we're all economically incentivized to sing the praises to the highest heavens. And that's also and I know Dan wants to get to this, so I'm just going to bring it up and let you chew on it. This religiousness that Bitcoin kind of brings to the table. People have mm-hmm. gotten to this point where Bitcoin and it, it, it obviously the Satoshi story that everyone likes to believe about the Immaculate Conception has a lot of parallels to Christ in some ways and and some other religions like people have almost made a deity <laughs> out of Satoshi at this point. And it's easy to do, yeah, really, yeah. if you just listen to people on Twitter talk about the Immaculate Conception and Satoshi got pregnant with a Bitcoin that had no father, and here we are. <laughs> Pete, before we let you tee off, mm. yeah, I, Josh knows he just hit my sweet spot here. I actually, in a yesteryear, I studied biblical and theological studies with the intent of going into what can be deemed as very conservative Christian ministry. Mm, okay. I am in a very, anyone that listens to this podcast know I'm in a very different position than that, and I've gone in... Uh, at, at points, a uh, polar opposite direction to that, I think I'm gravitating more back to the middle. But I see a lot of parallels in this Bitcoin community to the dogmatic religious community that I walked away from. One of the things I found most fascinating is your talk about this fiat rapture. Because <laughs> oh, I am, I am I constantly that. barking when I'm talking about yeah. Christianity with who I would deem as fundamentalists. One of the most troublesome parts of a fundamentalist viewpoint and I'm not looking to straw man here, but is this what I call escapist mentality. Uh. All that matters in the world is that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's the only truth that really matters. We're all going to be united with him. Anybody who doesn't accept this vision of reality is completely fucked. And I, and that's truthful. It's separated from God to eternity all the way up to eternal I don't damnation. remember reading the well, fucked part in the Bible, but hey. Yeah, it's in there. You're the pastor <laughs> But here. the problem that... The problem is with this, Pete, that it totally makes you disregard the present. And there's an element where we can transpose this on Bitcoin. This thing's perfect. Fiat is totally screwed. This is our savior, right? And it, it, it sort of thwarts your ability to stay in the moment and say, this network is imperfect. It needs work. Just as 
many religious folks sort of abandon this terrestrial earth in sight of something beyond, mm. right? We could see Bitcoiners sort of abandoning the task at hand, thinking this thing is the second coming of monetary Christ and solves all our problems. Go yeah. ahead and chew on any any part of that biscuit yeah, you want, uh, but I love these religious parallels you draw. Yeah, so one of the things I've actually been looking at recently is, uh, you know, I think it's like, you know, you're talking about religion, the Fiat Raptor. Uh, you know, there was one point on the McCormick podcast that I didn't make there, so I'll make it now. Is, is you know, you look at like the history of technology. Humans are very good at, you know, extrapolating these crazy futures. So one of them is like uh, that I've been saying a lot is like, um, you know, there's a lot of like Bitcoin electric man hypotheses. So you go back to like the early 1900s, right, when they discovered electricity. So, the, you know, the World's Fair, they had this like big exhibit, which was like the electric man, right? So they had this like thing where they trotted out this robot and they were like talking about you know, in 150 years, like people would just be electric, you know, and like they would have all these like kind of gadgets, like sort of, uh, you know, within these robots and like maybe people would be robots. So, right. So people are very good at like taking something that was like kind of true, right? The kind of true thing was like, okay, are we like electric men today? Like in some ways, right? Like we, we carry a computer in our pocket. Um, but in other ways, like, you know, we haven't, we're not, we don't have like radio antennas, like in our head, right. Yeah. The way that vision. So, uh, so I guess the question that I would ask is like, so if you take the electric man hypothesis, like, you know, from the 1900s, like you just discovered electricity, you think electricity is like the greatest thing ever. Uh, and so therefore you think at some point in the future, uh, there's going to be electric man or, you know, we discover balloons, you know, and all of a sudden, like you think that there's going to be balloon cities like in the future, you, know, you can go back to like aeronautics, like aeronautics was just like prior to, you know, uh, air travel. There was this idea that you would just we build these like large floating city structures and you could have yeah. thousands of people like living in the skies right so like uh there's an element of like technological truth like to each of those things right Te electricity was very important balloons were probably less important but air travel was still like important right so there, there was something there uh and then they sort of like we crazy like culture sort of develop around it and like really what they do i think and where they're valuable is they like push it to the extreme right so so i see a lot of these like bitcoin electric man hypotheses right like the future the, the hyper bitcoinized world the bitcoin citadels uh, is it true that like some part of our experience will be in the future will be like that? Uh, probably yes. But then in actuality, will, will we, will we even be able to conceive like what that is? No. So we're just making like Bitcoin electric man hypotheses, right? We, we, yeah. we have this like vague I love that understanding analogy. that electricity will be useful, but then we just have no ability to like really rationally judge, you know, even like right now in our interactions, like I'm talking to a microphone, which is like putting electricity to like a condenser, which is going to my computer, which is routing through the internet, which is going to the air, which is going to you guys. And you're like, right, there's a lot of electricity involved in this. Um, but the whole of our experience is still personal, right? It still feels like I'm talking to you. You guys still feel like you're talking to me. Uh, so, you know, Pete, this, I would describe this interaction as electric. Yeah. Well, I guess we're, <laughs> this is an electric, you know, we're on like yeah. video, but it's basically like know, people, back to the future. people love to extrapolate whatever the current theme is on into perpetuity and assume that this is going to be the way things are going to be times a thousand or times a hundred or whatever it is. But it's just human nature to assume that the near, near the near future or the far future is going to be what it is now completely linearly, uh, you know, attached to what we're at at the moment. Right. When, not foreseeing, you know, who knows what other inventions could intercede between now and then. The other issue, and this pertains to all homo sapiens, the three of us included, is people often respond to certainty. They respond to confidence, right? When you oversimplify and make something maybe not true, but digestible and simple and hopeful, uh, it's really appealing. 
it makes you want to kind of stop there and get all cozy and hunker down. Back to the religious discussion, not to go on too much of a tangent, but one of my favorite authors, Christian authors, is an uh, Old Testament scholar named Pete Enns, and he has a book called The Sin of Certainty. He has two books. I'm going to plug them right here. The Sin of Certainty and another book called The Bible Tells Me So. If you are a Christian, this gentleman is a Christian. You need to read both these books. Um, but this pertains back, like it's it's appealing to take shortcuts. We all do it. And you absolutely see it in the Bitcoin community just as much as anywhere else, even though the motto is don't trust verify. Mm, I think maybe we should kick this off with Bitcoin confessions. Um, you just get on our podcast, you make your confessions live to Bitcoin and you, all your sins yeah. are forgiven and you will be living in a citadel in the future. Mm. Yeah. The three high priests right yeah. here. Well, I mean, I think I think like the lesson of that also is like we have to approach this with some humility, right? Like and, and we have to approach Bitcoin as if we still are capable of learning things from it. Right. So I think this is a conversation I have with some of the, you know, other old timers who I talk to, which is that, you know, oftentimes I'll have some part of the conversation with them where it's like, OK, like what? what are we, what do we foresee ahead that like, we're going to derive some value from, right? Like, because you have to like kind of approach it with that, that mentality, right? If you're not actively learning or like trying, trying to kind of, um, approach things of making things better, I think it just gets very hard, right? It's, it's hard to enact any sort of meaningful change, like in that construct. Right. So I think, um, yeah, I guess I think approaching it from this idea, like also where, you know, you should find a way to contribute. Like it's pretty early for Bitcoin, like overall, right? So like I, I encourage people to try to find what it is that connects with them and then, you know, ask your questions. And then if you're authentic to that experience, at some point you'll arrive at some part of this that's unfinished, right? Like Bitcoin is like one of those maps. Like if you've ever played like old civilization games, it's like we're constantly discovering like new terrain. Uh, mm. And if you push far enough, you're going to get somewhere where like nobody has the answer to that. Um, and, and that's just the process of where we're at with understanding Bitcoin. Right. But does that, you know, does that really mean that we're going to live in like this, this crazy type future that we're talking about? Probably not. But like, you know, you still can add and contribute. Right. There's like plenty of dark spots of the map where it's like if you ask people and you're like, you're like, what happens in the situation? Like nobody knows. Right. There's just nobody who's thought through that. So, you know, it can be tough to get to those points, but I think satisfying when you do so. Uh, one thing I want to hit before we go it doubles back to what you were saying about this uh, digital cash sort of versus immutable supply asset, right? And there's, in my view, Satoshi did blend the two. I understand what you're saying about him coming from the cypherpunk sort of digital cash vision, but just thinking about what he put in the first block, there was some, there was a strong desire, right? He's referencing central banking, right, in the first yeah. block. So there's some. Tell me if you agree that there's some confluence of blending well, so let me that ask digital you cash this is a with. Good, this is a good question that I like to ask people. Uh, so if if he had put a weather report, let's just say like instead of the the chancellor on the bit the bailout brings, <laughs> let's just say let's just say Satoshi put the weather report for that day. Uh, would Bitcoin be a less political technology than it is? No. Right. So then the answer is like, does it actually matter that he did that? And I think like, you know, this is where it gets kind of weird, right? It's like, mm. where does one thing start? And like, where does the other thing begin? Uh, because obviously, like him putting the bailout on the on the brink of bank, like banks on the brink of bailout. That's like a perfect we take that as like a profound signal of like his intent. Uh, but if we remove that and you ask, like, what if he had just put anything else in there? Uh, would that really have mattered? Would Bitcoin be any less threatening to the status quo than it currently is? The answer is obviously no, because it wouldn't have changed anything about 
the technology itself. Uh, so then you get into this weird, like, you know, uh, thought loop of like, okay, well, which, which thing creates it is, is that, is it that Bitcoin is innately apolitical? Is it innately, uh, you know, a, a cypherpunk thing? Is it an innately, um, you know, Austrian thing or, uh, what is that our perception? Like, where does one of these things end and where does one of these mm. things begin? Yeah. Uh, I think the right answer is probably like Bitcoin exists, right? And the software would be political anyway, right? Even if he had just put his, uh, like, you know, some random, you know, gossip column in there, uh, it still would have had the same political intent. Uh, but I don't know, because, right, it changes. You would feel differently about it, right? You wouldn't be able to say and, and claim that that was his, his intent, right? So, like, which, like, how does that flywheel start? Like, did he have to do that if he didn't do that? Uh, what was the change? I, again, un, unanswerable question. But right. It's a great question. Here, So what do you, do you see two visions that are going to have to clash? So you have sort of the digital cash, privacy-minded, Monero comes to mind, that crowd. Then you have on the other side, the economically-minded, big money, in many regards, vocally looking for regulatory clarity, where some of these sort of fungibility privacy upgrades might conflict with that vision. Do you see these two groups colliding or do you think they can be symbiotic? Well, I think the point with the Forbes article, you know, talking about the three different camps was that I think that they're fundamentally always going to be in conflict and that their their views are, you know, ultimately Bitcoin might be better for that, right? It actually might be better yeah. that it's a union of, of people who are aspiring towards different things and that it hasn't like completely collapsed into like being one version of that view versus the other. Uh, so it's it's okay for us to live in a world in which there are like tensions and certain groups maybe aren't as satisfied with Bitcoin as other groups, uh, as long as they're sort of, you know, trying to improve it. And I think ultimately, like the incentive alignment is for everyone to uh, uh, improve Bitcoin, right? If you really understand the mechanics of how the software works and how it was set up, uh, you know, and how it is a fair monetary system that is really decentralized, well, then your incentives is to improve it, like in ever, however way you think, you know, that can be done. And I think... Um, you know, I mean, we'll, I think we'll end up we'll end up seeing a lot. I think in the next couple of years, there's a few developers I think who have kind of been on the sidelines, like working on Bitcoin for a long time, and they have really interesting future visions for it, but that haven't really been realized. Like Paul Stortz is kind of one of them. Uh, Jeremy Rubin to name another one where it's, you know, people have put a lot of creative energy into Bitcoin, and maybe they don't get anything out of it, right? There's just Bitcoin never changes in a way. Uh, that they might want, uh, and Bitcoin still might be fine, right? But I still think it, I think we need conflict in Bitcoin, right? And and one of the things that I think is not said enough to people who are new in Bitcoin is that uh, if you study the timeline of of Bitcoin, what you will find is that a lot of the biggest ideas about how Bitcoin evolved they came from people who were very outside the mainstream. That there was sort of a monoculture in Bitcoin at the time, and then someone came from outside of that monoculture with a new idea. You, I think you mentioned SegWit, which was a, a Bitcoin up, upgrade that was very much the product of that, you know, type of thinking. Um, you know, there's always going to be new ideas that come from from outside that monoculture and then, you know, influence that monoculture. And and that's good. And I would actually be worried if that wasn't occurring in Bitcoin. Mm, agreed. Right. Yeah, 100%. And I think one of the other things with the other cryptocurrencies, what is kind of damning about them is that they they don't really have robust enough cultures of disagreements and, and where there are warring needs, right? Like, you're building on the Tron blockchain. You're just kind of following Justin Sun's Twitter and like trying to build whatever it is, the version of he, what he wants. Right. So, um, we see other cryptocurrencies are absence of conflict. Yeah. And so I would argue that internal conflict in Bitcoin therefore is probably a positive. We, we probably want that. Uh, does that mean at the end of the day, everybody gets what they want? 
Uh, no, uh, probably not. Uh, but you know, it's, 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 again, it's like, if you believe in democracy is like another great example of that, right. As at the end of the day, do we get everything we want? It's the process, right? I think this is just my opinion, but what I've seen in the communities of other blockchains or other you know, XRP or any of these other things is it's a monoculture of just people mm. taking the word of somebody else and perpetuating it down the line. There's no real vibrance in those communities as I think you're just kind of, um, indicating. Right. Right. EOS has like been a great example of a blockchain community that is like pretty much all but collapsed. You know, the company that, that created it is non-functional. Right. So again, I think, um, you know, we should want Bitcoin to be an environment where there is division. We should want there to be yes. different groups that, that want to push Bitcoin forward in different ways. Uh, so, you know, this was my big takeaway, I think, from the op CTV thing. You know, there was a lot of younger, you know, the kind of interns, younger writers of Bitcoin magazine who were just like very flustered by this process. Right. They didn't <laughs> they had never seen it before. They hadn't lived through the, you know, the fork war period where like every day it was just people yelling at each other and flaming about things. Right. But it was like you could see that they were just like very confused by this. Like, it was unfamiliar to them because I and I what I took away from that is I think that they've grown up in an environment in Bitcoin where it's like there's a lot of agreement and there's actually kind of like a social penalty. Like if you don't agree, right? Like nobody's going to retweet your thing that they don't agree with. So they're a little bit more conditioned to, you know, again, this like monoculture. So again, that's just something like I worry about a little bit. And I try to, you know, uh, at least to the extent like my work exists, like to, to challenge that, because I think that, um, I, I will I want a Bitcoin where there is diversity of ideas. Um, and I think we want a Bitcoin where there's diversity of ideas. And if that ever stops, I would be very concerned about Bitcoin. Amen. I cannot agree more with that. Um, <laughs> as we round out, what are you working on right now? What do you what ideas are you excited about exploring? Uh, yeah, um, I'm definitely going back into the archives again and doing some digging. Um, you know, I don't have anything that I've uh so that I'm slated to write right now. I'm taking a, taking a little break in that regard. But uh, yeah, I've been spending a lot of time recently um, kind of going back and researching the old cypherpunk mailing lists and sort of trying to get an idea of, you know, what are some of these preconditions that kind of existed before Satoshi uh, was around. Look, I, I think at the end of the day, like what I try to do is like, you know, and this kind of manifests and stuff like the last days of Satoshi is like, I think there's a certain amount of information that you can only get by like kind of forcing yourself to like sit with some content for a long period of time. Mm. Um, and, you know, so I've been reading through like Hal's, a lot of Hal's like whole backstory, like all of his emails, because, you know, he was on these, he was basically, you know, replying to mailing lists for years, right? Uh, there's the cryptography mailing mm. list, there's the cypherpunk mailing list, but he's even on like this extropian mailing list where they're talking about like futuristic worlds and all this sort of stuff. Uh, but really, I think the thing that's been so remarkable to me, like just following that is that, you know, just to see his perseverance over time, like just to, to think that he could have been that excited when Bitcoin came out after 20 years of like trying and failing at these different things. Like to me, that's sort of remarkable. Right. And, and it was really only like sifting through that amount of information where it hit me like halfway through. And I was like, I was like, man, like he went like, think, just think about like, how would like, there's a lot of things that I'm excited about, but like, you know, to be really excited about an unpopular idea for like 20 years. Yeah. It's and crazy. Like finally get it in your lifetime In your lifetime, you were there and to be the first user and to do what he did. Um, it's incredible. And it's incredible. Not really because of the reaction, it's just the amount of stuff you would have had to yeah. go through. to like, get to that point in life. Uh, you know, and they're, they're the, all the people who were on that journey with him that just weren't there at the end. They just didn't, they dropped off. They stopped caring. They, they stopped believing, um, and I think ultimately I've come to peace with Hal a little bit because I've always seen Hal as someone who's like a little bit like, 
maybe not super involved in like the technical development of Bitcoin, but somebody who, um, you know, we sort of gravitate to as sort of a proxy for Satoshi. You know, he kind of came up through the same school. But yeah, I came up with a new appreciation for how. So we'll see if that manifests in anything. But I've, I've been spending a lot of time with him lately and and his journey. And I'm, I'm, I'm even just like more impressed by him as a human, which again, I know is something that everybody takes away from how. But yeah. I'm curious where if, if someone listening is interested, because I'm interested, where do you find this yeah. information? Where do you find these old mailing lists? Yeah, you can search for them. Uh, so there's the cryptography mailing list, there's the cypherpunk mailing list, and the extropian mailing list. Those were kind of the principal mailing lists that um, Hal was uh, a participant in. Unfortunately, a large pieces of them seem to be missing, or there's just kind of, uh, you know, they're just they're not there for whatever reason. But yeah, there's a long conversations, and it's funny, like, Again, this is just what I find interesting. So I don't know if this answers your question at all. But like, you know, uh, you'll see people like mention ideas that are kind of you'll see now again, like there's this whole period where they're like really interested in discrete log contract cryptography. And I was like, oh, that's like a thing that like Bitcoiners are like interested in now. But they're talking about it for eCash like in 1993. And you're like, oh, man, that idea has been around wow. for like a long wow. time. And I'm like, OK, that changes my opinion about this like pretty substantially because, you know, and then and then you sort of see like how long the discussions like about like different periods where like you're like, oh, OK, well, they're like kind of figuring it out. Right. Like early on, you sort of have the early 90s. They're sort of like, OK, well, digital cash, that's cool. Like, here's the problems that that would solve. Uh, but then like how much should there be and like who would make it and like what, you know, happens when you make it. And then there's sort of a intermediary period where they're like, oh, OK, well, what if they're not online at the same time? That's weird. Like that's a, that's another problem, right? So they get like more sophisticated, and 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 almost like to be honest, like the first few years before Bitcoin, you're sort of like, man, they're 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 so close. Like somebody's gonna put this together, and then lo and behold, right? Um, so you know, you never know. You never know what could be percolating right now that is the same conditions. You know. Mm, very fascinating. Well, cool guys. Uh, it's been awesome chatting. Um, it has. You know. Thanks for joining us. Um, really enjoyed this discussion. Give us a handoff to you and your work, Pete. Sure. Pete Rizzo, uh, editor of Bitcoin Magazine, uh, editor of Large Kraken, the cryptocurrency exchange, Bitcoin historian on Twitter. You can follow me at Pete underscore Rizzo underscore. Uh, also a contributor for Forbes. Uh, we can read some of my articles there. But uh, yeah, I'm you know, enthusiastic about Bitcoin history. Uh, and if you find anything interesting, uh, always happy to answer a DM and, and point you to something uh, if I know the answer to it. Well, we're hungry for more Rizzo articles and... Uh... One of these days in the future, we'll talk to you again. Thanks for coming on. This was awesome. Thanks. Cool, guys. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB Podcast.